Okay, glad to see you all. Go ahead and find a seat. You should have an outline like this from the materials table. And I'm going to do my best to speak up. If you find yourself in the back and you're having trouble hearing me, just grab your stuff and scoot up closer. Or wave at me and I'll try to do better. Um, Just a reminder, like I told you last week, our schedule isn't exactly every two weeks. And just to prove that, next week we meet again. So you don't have two weeks till our next class. It'll just be one week. And then we'll be on the two-week schedule for a while. Um, Let's see, any other announcements? I don't think so. Let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that because of Jesus Christ we can call you Father. We are thankful to be your children. Thank you for providing us this place. Thank you for placing us in a country where we have the freedom to gather together and to read your word. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Father, for all those who you've redeemed. You filled us with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of your word. And... We beg for you this morning to teach us, to make your word clear, to give us alert minds, to clear away the distractions, that our lives might produce fruit from having been in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well grab your notebook, turn it over. We're going to remind ourselves why we're here. We're going to start here every week. And you can see there at the top that we have the Wellspring purpose. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So the elders at Grace Bible Church want us to understand what it means to be a godly woman. And Wellspring is a means to equip us toward that goal. So how do we pursue that goal? Well, we need to be and we should want to be in God's word so that we can shepherd our hearts with it. And we need to be shepherding our hearts towards something, actually towards someone, right? Whom do we shepherd our hearts toward? Towards Jesus Christ, that's right. And what do we do, what do we use to shepherd our heart toward Jesus? The Word, that's right. And then what does the Word help us do? What do we see in the purpose there? Yeah, to love God, and, and it helps us to live out the gospel, to display the work that Christ has done for us, to display that that's a work that changes us. And then... Um, we do that in order to strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. And what is that gospel purpose of the church? Now, you probably have stuck in your Bible a bulletin. (laughs) You might, if you're like me, it kind of becomes your filing system sometimes. And on that bulletin every week, probably the part of it that we don't read, says that, that our purpose is to draw in and to build up in order to be sent out. 
And so that means that as we come to Wellspring, our desire is to be equipped so that we are sent out to be effective ministers of the gospel in our home and in our church and in our workplace, wherever the Lord would place us. And so that's what we're after here in Wellspring. And we do that through pursuing these three disciplines. Now, discipline one, you see there on your notebook, is that she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. See, we must pay attention to our hearts. This morning, we're going to do a biblical survey of the heart. And as we do, we are going to see why we need to be diligent to bring our heart to God's word. Because that is where God reveals himself most clearly. See, we need to see how needy our hearts are for him. We need to understand that when we open up the word, what we need most is him. We need God himself. And so that's why, if you were here last week, you heard that the um, one of the main assignments for Wellspring is to get started on a, a Bible reading plan, a plan that will get you through every part of the Bible in the course of a year. And we ask you to get that started on that by October 1st, so you still have another week. If you haven't picked a plan, if you haven't gotten started, that's something you need to be sure to do this week. If you were not here last week and you have any questions at all about that, you can talk to me or talk to your discussion leader about that. And then discipline two is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. The first place that we need to make an impact with our heart for God and and his word is where we live. (laughs) Discipline two is an overflow of discipline one. When our hearts are cared for, when they are set on the Lord, and we've been impacted by our meeting with the Lord in his word, then it will impact our home, whatever that situation looks like. And it will impact those who step into our home. And it will impact those family family relationships with those who live outside our home as well. Our conversations and our attitude will reflect that we have met with God in his word. For those of us who are married, it will affect how we treat our husbands. If we have little ones, it will affect how we instruct them. It'll affect how we talk to our grown children. It'll affect how we care for our parents, how we care for our roommates, how we interact with our brothers and sisters. When our hearts have been shepherded with the word, we will be more focused on what most brings God glory in all those relationships. Now remember that this flows out of discipline one. And as we shepherd our own hearts, we are going to see sin in our own lives. And we're going to need to take that to the cross. And you're going to need to confess it and be encouraged by what Christ has done to cleanse us and set us free from that. And as we do that, that prepares us to give that same gospel hope to those people that we live with. So then that brings us to discipline three, which is ministry. You can see it there in your notebook, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Having a heart that's been shepherded with the word, having met with God, having drawn near to him, 
then we step into the lives of others in the church. And we actually know how to help them because we've been in the truth. When we are ministering to others, even in next generation with the little kids, um, our concern becomes, um, our, our primary concern becomes not just what they know, but what's going on with their heart. What's going on with their heart? How can I care for your heart? How can I help you see your heart? How can I help you care for your heart with God's word? How can I help you take that heart that loves God's word and then take that into your household? And live it out there. See, it's just it's 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 helping others learn these same things that we're learning for ourselves. So when we're thinking this way, we're thinking about our own hearts. We're helping others care for their hearts. Um, then then that is what God loves to use to bring fruit, to bring fruit in our homes, in our church, and beyond because we're starting with the heart. Now, because we're talking about ministry, um, just to make it practical, I'm going to give you an opportunity to take your shepherded heart and to care for others. Uh, Wednesday Wellspring uh, is different than Saturday Wellspring in that they have a program with that includes the little children of the moms who come. And Sarah Martin coordinates the children's part of that, And it would be really helpful to her and helpful to the ministry to have a list of women who could sub on occasion. Uh, She really just needs people who would be available from about 8.30 a.m. to about 10 a.m. And it wouldn't necessarily be every week, but she would have a list. If if enough of us would volunteer, if you have a flexible work schedule that sometimes you might be available on Wednesdays or you might be able to go in later on Wednesdays, or if you're a student and you have some flexibility and once in a while you'd be able to go help, um, I want to give you her information so you can just contact her and let her know that you wouldn't mind getting a call the day before and if you're available, being able to come in and sub once in a while. So her name is Sarah Martin. Her number is 480-452-2767. Her email is Colossians 4.6. And if you don't know how to spell it, you can just open up your Bible and copy it. And it's at me.com. Okay. So, let me get this out of the way. Well, that brings us to our lesson. And we are going to start with a story that Scott has used in Build. In August of 2009, there was a baby boy born in India with a serious problem. He was born with his heart on the outside of his body. He was born in a remote rural area of India, and his desperate father rushed him by 24-hour train, 800 miles across the country to the capital to try to save his life. Can you imagine public train carrying this poor sick baby? Something had gone wrong in development, and his only hope was if the doctors could get his heart back inside his body. Now, there are some interesting parallels and contrasts for us in this story. Spiritually speaking, what's similar for us? 
Well, it's that our biggest challenge is our heart. That baby's biggest challenge was not that he'd been born into poverty. It wasn't his environment. It wasn't his family. But it was his own heart. And it's the same for us. You know, my greatest challenge and your greatest challenge is not our circumstances. It's not our happiness. It's not even our finances or our upbringing. None of those are our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our heart, our spiritual heart before the Lord. Now, there are some major differences between us and the baby. This baby's uh, physical heart was on the outside causing problems. But God says that we have a spiritual heart that's on the inside causing problems. It's on the inside and it's oozing all kinds of toxins into every part of our lives. The baby's only hope was to get his heart back inside his body. But our only hope is to get that sinful heart out and to get a new heart. And thankfully, that is what God has done for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to the cross to purchase us a new heart. Now, everybody in that baby's life was focused on his heart. They weren't talking about his eye color or how much he weighed or how long he was. They were concerned about his heart. And we need to be entering into a lifestyle, if we're not there already, where that is what we are concerned about as well. The point in that is not to be myopic, it's not to be self-focused and self-absorbed, but it's in order to understand the true condition of our heart so that we understand in increasing measure what happened at the cross for that sinful heart. See, we need to become convinced that we cannot live a life that neglects our heart. And so we must come to the word. So I want to ask you a question. Is your heart ever cold and unresponsive? Maybe just not interested in getting into the word. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have those days, right? But there's only one thing that will warm and soften that cold heart. There's only one thing, and that's the word. And so we bring that heart, even when it's cold and unresponsive, to the word. And we come to the word to meet with God there. And we pray, and we ask the Holy Spirit to use his word to soften us, to draw us near to him, to help us see him in his word. Now, when we begin teaching on each discipline in Wellspring, we're going to start with a biblical survey. Now, go ahead and take out your handout. You can see there that there are bold categories. And within each category, we're going to start in the Old Testament and then move into the New Testament. And when we get to the next category, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and move forward and work to the New Testament. And the reason is that God has gradually unfolded his revelation to us. God revealed to Moses exactly what he wanted his people Israel to have, exactly what they needed to know to have a saving relationship with him. But as we know, God uh, continued to build on that and build on that and build on that. So we want to walk through these subjects in God's word the same way that he's given them to us. Now today we are looking at a very broad brush picture of what God says in his word about the heart. 
We're not going to focus in on the details. We're going to look at a whole lot of verses. And we're going to do our best just to let those verses speak for themselves. And our point is not to introduce any confusion in that, but rather to feel the impact of verse after verse after verse of what God says in his word about the heart. And I, I did, this is just a note. Um, you can see we got pages and pages of verses here. And I want to encourage you to do what is going to help you get the most out of this lesson. Um, some of us don't stay engaged as well if we're not writing things and turning pages and stuff. And so I do better when I'm doing that because I, I have to stay on it. It keeps me awake and alert. But some people find that really distracting because we're looking at verses in Joel and you're thinking, I don't know where Joel is. And in the meantime, we're already done with Joel and we're back to something else. And the point is, is to do what's most helpful to you. Look up all the verses, look up some of the verses, just listen, because I'm going to be reading all the verses, and you've got them all here. Um, and you'll also see that there are verses on here that we're not going to actually turn to, and they're there just for you. You can go back and look at this more later. So make it your tool. All right, so that brings us to question one, and I need a drink. All right. So, what is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Well, Scott Maxwell, a couple weeks ago, in the second sermon on greed, talked about the heart. And he said that the heart was the inner man, the inner person. It's you. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, and that's the physical part of us. But the inner man, we refer to as the heart. The heart is the place where God reveals himself to us. And the heart is the part of us that is addressed by God. It is the seat of doubt and hardness. It's the seat of faith and obedience. And heart can be synonymous with mind. So every word, every thought, every desire, every will... Every emotion, every deed comes from the heart. So, if the heart is enslaved by sin, the whole man is in bondage. And because corruption stems from the heart, it's there that God begins his work of renewal. And because conversion takes place in the heart, it means that conversion will affect every other part of who we are. See, natural man has a stony heart, a heart that is turned against God and against his neighbor until God's intervention gives him a new, soft, teachable heart. So when we say heart, we're talking about you. Not just a part of you, but who you are at the very core. So therefore, it is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When we stand before God, he will not neglect our heart. So that brings us to question two. What is the condition of our heart? And we're going to start by looking at Psalm 40. And if you have any bookmarks or scratch paper, you might want to stick one in Psalm because we'll be back to Psalm a few times this morning. Now, Psalm 40 is a great Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of comfort 
But right here in the middle of this psalm of comfort, uh, we're going to read verse 12. And he says, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. See, our hearts are in such a condition that what we need them to do, they fail to do. And notice the list that he makes in verse 12. He talks about evils, and then he talks about iniquities, and then he talks about his heart. Now, would you have thought to add your heart to that list? See, that's not our flinch, but we need to see our hearts that way. It's very clear that our hearts have failed us. Now, turn over to Proverbs 20. Proverbs is the next book after Psalm. So verse 9 reads in Proverbs 20, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? And the obvious answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. Our stain is so great, we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. So the answer, according to God, to who can cleanse our heart, is no one. So we saw that I have a heart that fails me, and I have a heart that's beyond my ability to cleanse. Now turn over to Matthew 15. Uh, We're not going to read this whole passage, but I want to give you a little background. All right, in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned about hand-washing, which is kind of like today, you know? We're like the hand sanitizer generation, and that's what they're worried about. But in verses 7 and 8, Jesus responds, and he says, Listen, here's the problem. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, they're not even concerned with their heart. It would be like the doctors in the story who were caring for that baby being more concerned with what he was wearing than what was going on with his heart. And so in verse 15, Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. So this is Matthew 15, verse 16. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us that there is a source of corruption inside us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. Now turn over to Romans 1. We're going to look at verse 20. Um, And again, we're just moving through the Bible. We started in the Old Testament. We're moving into the New Testament to see what God has to say about the condition of the heart. In verse 20... It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made, so that they are without excuse. See, from the beginning, God made it clear that he's there. 
But then verse 21, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart, their foolish heart was darkened. So what is the proof of our foolishness? It's this, that even though they knew something of God, they refused to honor God as God at a heart level. Now that's pretty foolish. And then verse 21 tells us that tells us that, that foolish heart plunges us into further spiritual darkness. So what we've seen so far from Psalm, we have a heart that fails us. From Proverbs, that our heart is beyond our ability to cleanse. From Matthew, that our heart is the source of defilement within us. And then Romans 1, that we have a foolish heart that invites further spiritual darkness. That's what God says about the heart. And that's a huge problem. So that takes us to question three then. Is my heart aware of this problem? So we're going to turn back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11. And if you have that bookmark or that church bulletin from last week, um, tear off a piece of it and stick it in Deuteronomy, because we're going to be in Deuteronomy a bunch this morning, too. Now, Deuteronomy mentions the heart 45 times. Now, if you're not on a reading plan, how often are you going to turn to Deuteronomy to read? Maybe not very often. And... That's, that's why we want to be in the whole word, because if we're not in Deuteronomy, we're missing 45 glimpses into what God says about our heart. And we don't want to miss that. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. See, under the Mosaic Covenant, there were these blessings for honoring the Lord from the heart. There was a relationship between obedience and blessing and fruitful life. But listen to what comes next. Verse 16 he says, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's warning Israel. See, he's telling them that our hearts are prone to deception even when we're doing really well. See, they're walking in obedience and they're loving God and they're serving God and he's blessing them. And he says, watch out. Right then is the place where your heart can become deceived and you can go after idols. So that tells us that our hearts are easily deceived, even when they're at their best, even when we're following the Lord. Isn't that sobering? Yeah. All right, turn on over then to Jeremiah. You can stick a marker in Jeremiah as well. We're going to be visiting Jeremiah quite a bit today. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9, is a really familiar verse. And we're going to see what Jeremiah says about the heart. Now listen to how strong the language is that he uses. He says, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Now you notice he didn't just say the heart's deceitful. Or that it's more deceitful than some things. He says it is more deceitful than all else. And it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
See, here's what Jeremiah is encouraging us to do. He says, make a list of everything in the world you can find that's deceitful, anything at all. And nothing on your list will beat the heart out of the number one spot. Nothing else is more deceitful than the heart. It is that sick. It's so sick that it really is beyond our grasp. We can't even understand its condition. It's worse than we think. So we saw in Deuteronomy that our hearts are easily deceived even when we're at our best. And then in Jeremiah, we see that the heart itself is deceptive, that it's the most excellent deceiver. Now turn to Romans 16. That's our next passage. Okay, we're going to read verse 17. And as we move into the New Testament here, we're asking the question, is my heart aware of its problem? And we saw, again, our problem, the heart's problem back in question one is um, that it fails us. It escapes our ability to cleanse it. It's the source of our defilement. It's foolish. It loves more spiritual darkness. And... Now, here in Romans 16, Paul is finishing his letter to the believers in Rome, and he says in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. See, if we are unsuspecting people in the church and there are troublemakers there that we are naive to, our hearts can even be deceived by them. And remember, that's when I'm at my best. Even the people around me in church can deceive my heart. Now turn over to James 1. We're going to go to James to finish out this question. We're going to read verse 26. We've seen a lot about deception in the heart, but here's one last aspect of it we're going to look at. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. See, if I think I'm religious but I don't have control over my mouth, it is evidence, it's proof that I have deceived my own heart. So, is my heart aware of its problem? Well, the answer is no, because there's no way it can be aware and alert to its own devastation when it is surrounded by deception and vulnerable to deception and filled with deception. So, we have a heart that has this condition that's beyond our ability to cleanse, it's full of defilement, it's easily deceived, it loves to deceive, and so we're left with quite a problem, aren't we? Well, that brings us to the next question, which is, what is the highest call of the heart? And we're going to turn to Matthew 22, and this is uh, the New Testament uh, repeat of, of the Deuteronomy 6 reference you see there.
So Jesus takes this summary command of what the law is all about and repeats it for his disciples in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. So a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? See, he's saying, what is the highest thing that a good Jew like me should be all about? And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. See, that is the highest call of the human heart, to love God. And not to love God with just a part of it, but with all of it. So, just to make sure we understand this correctly, my heart that has failed me, that's beyond my cleansing, that's my source of defilement, that is foolish, that invites spiritual darkness, that's easily deceived when it's at its best, that loves to deceive, that's the most excellent deceiver, that can be deceived by others around me, that can deceive itself, that heart, that heart, is supposed to love God. And not just with a part of it, but with all of it. See, at this point, are you thinking, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? See, God, do you know what you're asking? My heart is so low, and your call is so high. And so that leaves us asking the next question. And that is, does God see this predicament? Uh, We're going to skip over those first two references. Go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 8. Okay, Solomon has finished building the temple, and now this is a prayer of dedication for the temple, and he's actually praying for the people of Israel and asking God to hear their prayers. So reading in verse 37, if there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hand toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. See, God definitely sees the heart. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. In fact, he's the only one who sees the heart accurately. So yes, God does see this predicament. He sees this discrepancy between the condition of our heart and the call on our heart to love him completely. Now we're going to skip past a couple of those references there. I would just encourage you to go back if you're reviewing this lesson and look up those verses. Um, There's just so much that God's word has to say about the heart. But we're going to go back to Jeremiah. Hopefully you stuck a marker there. And we're going to look back at Jeremiah 17, this time verse 10, right next to where we were before. And it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man 
each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So we see here that the Lord searches the heart for a purpose. His purpose is personal repayment for what he finds in the heart. He comes to each one and he evaluates and he weighs and he repays. And then he moves on to the next one. And when God says that he searches the heart and he tests the mind, he's not talking about two different things. He's really saying the same thing in two different ways. He's saying there is nothing about you that I miss. So God not only knows the heart, he not only knows our predicament, but he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. Now the Mark and the Luke passages show us that Jesus also knows the heart. But we're going to turn on over to 1 Corinthians 4 to look at what Paul has to say. Now, you may be familiar with the fact that Paul had trouble with the Corinthians, and it seemed perpetually so, and a lot of times the problem was with how they regarded him. So let's read beginning in verse 3. He says, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, notice that Paul is not acquitted because he can't see anything wrong in his life. He knows that it's the Lord who examines that God is the one who discloses the motives of men's hearts. So Paul's saying, I understand Scripture's analysis of the heart. I know that my heart deceives me. Paul even knew that about his own heart. So even though he doesn't see anything wrong with his heart, he knows that that doesn't acquit him. It doesn't mean that he's clean before God because he knows he can't see his own heart accurately. But the Lord will come. And he will disclose the motives of men's hearts. So, does God see the predicament? Once again, yes. He's the only one who sees it as it truly is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. Now, just in my Bible reading, I came across another passage that I really liked um, that talks about this point. And so, I want you to turn to Revelation 2. This is a bonus. (laughs) Just in case there's not enough references on that paper. Um, So this is Jesus speaking to the church in Thyatira, speaking to John to give a message to the church in Thyatira. And Jesus says in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. This is Jesus speaking to the church, this particular church. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness 
and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches, listen, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. See, I can kind of take this teaching about God evaluating the heart and kind of want to think, well, that, that was kind of the Old Testament, right? But it's very interesting that Jesus says, when people refuse to repent, I will come and deal with that because I want the churches to know that I search the heart. Jesus wants us to know that he searches the heart. He takes repentance very seriously. All right. Well, that takes us to question six. We're going to take a short break, maybe five minutes or something like that. You can use the restroom. You can. All right, ladies. Back to Deuteronomy we go. And so now we're asking, what is the greatest need of the human heart? And we're going to approach this question from two perspectives. The first question, the first time we're going to ask it, what is the greatest need of the heart and who is responsible for meeting that need? So if you look at your verses under question six, draw a line under James 4.8. When we get to Deuteronomy 30, then we'll look at it from a second perspective. So in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Moses is speaking to Israel. And he says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. And yet, on your fathers did the Lord set his affections to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses is reminding the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator God of the universe has established With them. He has set his affections on them, and now he has called them to love him, to walk with him, and serve him with all their hearts. Now, in verse 16, it sounds like he's kind of dropping a bombshell. He says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So, what do their hearts need? Circumcision. And they are commanded to do it. For themselves. It's their responsibility. Now turn back to Jeremiah. You might not have ever looked at Jeremiah so much in one day before. We're in chapter 4 this time. This is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel. And God is saying, still saying, the same thing. In verse 4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. See, God is concerned about the evil of their deeds. And where is he saying that this needs to be fixed? In their heart. 
He's saying to Israel, there needs to be a radical removal, just like in circumcision, of everything that's wrong with your heart, or there's going to be judgment. So this is a serious need. Now look down in Jeremiah 4, verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? It's been a thousand years. How long? So again, he's saying, you do something about your heart. But he's commanding them to do the very thing we saw back in Proverbs 20 that no one can do. No one can cleanse his own heart. But he's giving them that command. You wash it. You wash your heart. God is identifying the heart's greatest need. It needs a radical removal of all that's wrong with it. It needs to be cleansed. But he is placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Now turn to Ezekiel. We'll be in chapter 18. It's two books to the right of Jeremiah. So now, are you feeling the tension of this? As we work through scripture, the tension, it just keeps building as we walk through the Bible. We're in Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart. See, if you're a Jew and if you're hearing this, you're thinking, God... You want me to make the most important part of who I am before you? Who I am at the very core? The part of me that births and nurtures and matures and launches every thought, every emotion, every desire, every word? You want me to make new the part of me that you never overlook? You want me to do this? See, that's what a Jew who is hearing this would have to be thinking. And the answer is, yes. The command is, do this. Now, this should make us very uncomfortable. Its purpose was to make them uncomfortable. So turn now to Joel chapter 2. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. In Joel 2, verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garment. See, that was the custom when something awful happened. You tear your clothes, and it was a sign of deep sorrow and grieving and God is saying that's what you need to do to your heart he's saying return to me with this deep sadness and brokenness over what you've made of yourself tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are you need to show deep grief and sadness and brokenness now turn over to James 4 8 just so that we understand that this is also a New Testament command at a certain level for the believer. 
Okay. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, to be purified, to have all that's wrong with it cut away like in circumcision, to be torn in grief, to be made new, and we are commanded to do it. It is our responsibility. I'll turn once again back to Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 30. And having seen that the greatest need of our heart is to be cleansed and that we are responsible for that, now we're going to look at question six from another perspective. We're going to look and see what God has said he will do. Now this is what we've been waiting for. Here is the hope. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll begin in verse 1. So it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And he goes on and he gives some more beautiful promises of what's going to happen when they're restored. And then look down at verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. See, the old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From its earliest days, the old covenant made Israel long for the day when God would do something for their hearts. From the giving of the law, when God set up the covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was actually able to do all these things that God was commanding. So the old covenant highlights a need for the new heart, and yet it doesn't do anything to provide it. Now turn over to Psalm 51. David felt this tension. He knew God's evaluation of the heart. And he knew God's promise of a new heart. And he cries out for God to do that. And uh, this is the psalm that he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. Verse 10. He cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David felt this tension. He knew it was beyond him. And so he cried out to his Redeemer, to his Creator, for a heart, to do in his heart what must happen, but that he was incapable of. He's crying out for heart, for help at a heart level. Now, back to Jeremiah 31. You, know, you can see we're backtracking through a lot of the same books, and we can see that God is so gracious um, because in the very places where he was making known the need of the heart, and showing us our responsibility for our heart, um, right there, at the same time, he's giving hope. And he's promising that ultimately he will do 
what is needed for our hearts. Now, verse 31 of Jeremiah 31 is a passage that promises the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. See, this is the promise of the new covenant. Its focus is at the heart level, to do with the heart what the old covenant couldn't do. Now, turn to Ezekiel 11. Again, it's just two boxes. Two books to the right of Jeremiah. Are you seeing how rich the Old Testament is in teaching about the heart? Um, We're going to read in verse 19. And again, he's looking forward to the new covenant. Uh, And he says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He's saying, they have dead hearts. Their hearts are like stone, but I'm going to give them living hearts, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. See, this is a corporate expression of what God is going to do for his people Israel collectively. He will give a new heart to his people. Now over to Ezekiel 36. Again, God is just so gracious and he's so kind. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were written at a time when Israel was going into captivity. They were being judged. And God just keeps giving them these promises to give them hope in the midst of that judgment. All right, we're in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Moreover... I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, again, that dead heart, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, don't you love that? When God gives a new heart, then his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Now, I need to write in another verse here. You need Luke 22:15. That's the next place we're going to go because I want to show you the fulfillment of the promise of a new covenant. Luke 22. Now, here we find Jesus and it's the night before his crucifixion and he's eating the Passover with his disciples. In verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. See, he, he, he has his mind on the cross. That is where Jesus is focused. And he says, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he has take, had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God See, he's making it clear that his death is imminent. 
And then verse 19, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is taking the Passover supper and transforming it into what has become for us the remembrance of his death and the new covenant that he established by his blood. Jesus is telling them that the new covenant that was promised is here, that he's actually going to die to inaugurate it. So now let's turn over to Acts 2. This is after Christ has died and he's risen and he's ascended. He's back in heaven with the Father. And the Holy Spirit, he had sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come on the disciples, and they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking great things of God. And there are all these people from all these different places on earth gathered in Jerusalem, and they're all hearing these great things about God in their own language. And so they want an explanation, and Peter stands up and he gives his first sermon. Now this is what he says near the conclusion of that sermon. In verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter says, repent, be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and all whom God will call. The new covenant in Jesus' blood has been inaugurated and the Holy Spirit of promise has been poured out on all those who are present. And what happens at the heart level at those who hear Peter. It says they were pierced. They were pierced. The heart is worked on by the preaching of the gospel. The work that God had been promising for all those years has now started. Now turn over to Acts 15. This is the Council of Jerusalem. And see, there are non-Jews who have been believing, Gentiles. And this is a shock to the Jews because what did the Jews think? They thought God was primarily working with Israel. In fact, we saw that in some of those passages. God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So this was really quite shocking. But watch what happens in Acts 15.6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, there we see it again, God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. See, God is allowing the Gentiles to participate in the new covenant as well as the Jews. 
So we saw that the greatest need of the heart was to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. And at the same time, simultaneous to that, the way that our hearts change, the way any heart changes, is that we admit our inability and we trust God's promise to do for us and do, to do for our heart what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is the mystery of the sovereignty of God. <laughs> now, we looked at a lot of verses. We worked our way from Old Testament to New Testament a couple of times because this is central to understanding the gospel. If we don't understand the desperate need that sin gives our heart for cleansing, and if we don't understand our responsibility, then God's promise to cleanse our heart just doesn't mean much. So now let's look and see what God says about his provision for our heart. And that's question seven in your notes. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 6. All right, reading in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So again, he's thrusting Israel up against this. How am I supposed to do that? And then in verse 6 he says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. See, God is saying, you can't love me unless these words are on your heart. See, this is what God intended from the very beginning, that there be this relationship between the heart and his word. See, his design in forcing Israel into this dilemma is to say, there needs to be full contact. God's word embedded on your heart. It's tight and it's intimate. It's complete. So does that make discipline one make more sense? Why it's such a big deal about actually meeting with God in his word on a heart level? Now turn over to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra was a scribe and Ezra knew this. Ezra is one of the last historical books in your Old Testament. So if you get to Psalm, you've gone too far. See, he was a scribe. Israel had been sent into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and then God was bringing them back. And Ezra was among those who came back to to the land. And he was instrumental in helping rebuild the temple. And Ezra understood the heart, and he understood that God's word was to be in full contact with his heart. So in Ezra 7, verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. See, this is what we're talking about in Discipline 1. Ezra knew it. So what did he do? Where did he set his heart? On God's word. Who set his heart? Ezra did. Ezra set his heart on God's word. He set his heart before God's word to study the law of the Lord and to practice it so that he could teach it. He knew that his heart needed to be in contact with God's word. 
do we? Turn on over to Psalm 119. We're going to skip Psalm 19 for now. Um, Ezra knew this, and the psalmist knew it as well. Very familiar verse, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. See, that's the key. That's what it's all about. Our hearts need God. And it's always been that way. It was that way for believers under the old covenant, Because that's what the heart needs. The heart needs God. Now notice what he says next. It's not just some kind of spiritual experience. He says, do not let me wander from your commandments. Why? Because my heart needs you. And the only place I'm going to get you is in your word. And then verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, there it is again. Full contact between our heart and and God's word. Ezra got it, and the psalmist got it. Now you can see some uh, references for Proverbs listed there. We're not going to turn there. But in Proverbs, you have a, a, a father appealing to his children to store up his words in their heart. See, there is nothing better that we can give to our children either, or to anybody that we have to care for, because only God's word will act on the heart. Now we're going to go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. We already were um, here a minute ago. Um, And we're going to be reminded what God said he would do under the new covenant. All right, Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, verse 33 says he's going to put his law where? In the heart. God puts it there. See, God commands it. Get this word near your heart. And then he says that he's the one who's actually going to do it. In the new covenant, God is the one who brings that ultimate impact that only the word can have upon the heart. The new covenant brings the heart and God's word into a new relationship unlike anything that had ever happened before. So now we get to go to the New Testament and look at Jesus. Luke chapter 8. We'll be in verse 11. Jesus tells this foundational parable about a farmer and he's sowing seeds and the seeds land on different soils. And then down in verse 11 he gives the meaning of the parable. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. See, the devil doesn't want God's word coming anywhere near a person's heart. And he takes it away so that they will not believe and be saved. And then there are those on the rocky soil. And they are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy... And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. 
Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed, remember the seed is God's word, that's in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. The word has been united with their heart, and they hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. In three of these soils, the word either gets snatched away, it sprouts up and dies, or it gets choked out. But in verse 15, we see the only good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit. But of course, the million-dollar question is, how do I get that honest and good heart? Right? But we're not quite there yet. You can see, though, that Jesus' Jesus' intention is that God's word must come into contact with the heart. Now turn to Luke 24. Jesus has been raised, and he's joined up with two of his disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. And it's after the crucifixion, and they're discouraged because they don't know he's been raised yet. And they're explaining to Jesus what's going on. And wouldn't you just love to hear that conversation? You ever been in a conversation where someone comes and starts telling a story, but you know the other person already knows the story, but they just listen? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's fun. Okay, so in verse 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish man and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he's talking about God's word, beginning with all the word, Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He says, foolish man, you are slow of heart. They're slow of heart. Their heart was too slow in its interaction with God's word. So what does Jesus explain to them? The word, especially um, the word that talks about his suffering. He explains his suffering to them from the word. He gives them the gospel. See, that's what takes away sin and gives us that new heart. Now go down to verse 32. The disciples get to where they're going And Jesus eats with them, and they still haven't recognized him until he breaks bread. And then in verse 32, they say, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? See, their hearts were on fire as he was teaching the word of God to them. Their hearts were burning with the gospel that was being proclaimed to them by their Savior. Now, let's go to Hebrews 4 and see why. Why is God's word the provision that our hearts need? Okay, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, this is God's design for us with his word, that it would come near to our hearts, and that we would use it as a surgical tool and allow it to reveal our intentions and our motives and what's going on inside our hearts. See, God's word is his provision for our hearts. So, let's summarize. We saw that our hearts are a dismal failure, that they are beyond our ability to cleanse, that they make us impure with their evils, that they are foolish, that they love spiritual darkness, that they're easily deceived, and that they are the most exceptional deceivers, and that they are completely unaware of their own condition. And yet, we saw that the call on the heart is so high. To love God. To love him with our whole heart. So, do you see why Jesus had to come to suffer? To bear away that heart on the cross and to give us a new heart? And now with a new heart, God intends for his word to come near. So, what does that say about the attitude and the posture that our hearts need to have. It takes us right back to discipline one, that we would prayerfully shepherd our hearts to the word of God, to meet with him. That we wouldn't be lazy about bringing our hearts before God's word, that we would come bring our hearts before God's word so that we would know him and love him and have our hearts exposed there. Now, can you imagine God looking on his son who was only pure, who was always pure, he was completely pure. And what he put there was that old heart, your heart. And my heart, that heart that is full of deception and impurity, that's full of evil and foolishness and darkness. And he emptied out his cup of wrath on Jesus. Every drop of it, every drop of his wrath towards everyone who would believe. It's amazing, isn't it? And so because of what Christ has done, that new heart has been, or that old heart, the wrath of God against it has been satisfied. And in addition to that now, we have a new heart. We are a new creation in Christ. The promise of the new covenant is that a new heart would come. And that new heart has new, de- new desires. Now, do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember that? I remember for the first time, I had no idea what it was like before that. For the first time, I actually wanted to please God more than I wanted to please myself. You know, before that, I I, I wanted to be good, maybe. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want other people to think I was bad. I had lots of motivations. But this is the first time I actually wanted to please God. And I remember that I actually wanted to read the Word because I wanted to know Him. 
Because I had a new heart, and that new heart had new desires. See, I wasn't the same person anymore. My sin didn't just make me feel guilty anymore. I actually hated it enough that I wanted to leave it behind because it separated me from the Savior that now I had a heart to love. And the only reason I had that was because he took away that old heart, and he gave me that new heart with new desires. That is what God does in salvation. So, with this new heart, how do we respond? We cry out to the Lord and we beg him, Lord, as I read your word, come close and judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Expose at the core of me what is really going on. See, we need that exposure, but we also need to feed the new heart. See, we need our hearts to be fed with Christ and him crucified, the complete work that he's done there, that we are set free from sin. We're not slaves to it anymore. You know, it it can be, um, it's not uncommon for us to think of the gospel and to think that's what you give people who are lost. That's what people need to get saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, um, sorry about this, says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That same gospel that saved us is the same gospel that will feed our new heart. And we need that heart to be fed so that it's functioning rightly, thinking truthfully, acting wisely. Now, if we are not women who do this, If we don't shepherd our heart to meet with God in his word, for one, we're not being exposed to what's wrong with us at a heart level, and for another, then, we're not feeding that new heart. And if I'm not caring for my own heart in this way, how can I possibly care for the people in my household or the people in my small group or the people I work with if I'm not shepherding my own heart. See, we need God's word because we need to know him. It's not so that we just know facts. It's not so that we just win arguments. It's not so I don't feel guilty. It's so that we know him. So we draw near to God, to the God of the universe, the God who saved us. So then here's the encouragement. If we do that, then we will be equipped to be used by God. And sometimes those ways are really big and bold and amazing and we can't believe it. And sometimes they are just quiet and they are subtle. And the only one who knows is God. But God is the one who promises to bring the increase. And we put ourselves in the position to be used by him to bring that fruit when we keep our heart in intimate contact with God's word. So we need to shepherd our hearts and we need to do that prayerfully. Um, That means when we open the Bible, whether we're alone or we're opening our Bible with somebody else, um, we still want to start at a place where we are asking God to come and to meet with us and to reveal himself to us in his word, to show us who he is, to reveal the truth about our own hearts, to give us eyes to see where there's still residue of the old heart hanging around. And we need to do it in a way that's dependent upon him. This is not a box to check read my Bible today. That is not at all what we're talking about. 
Now, if this isn't your habit, if you're not in the habit of reading God's Word every day, or if this is not how you read God's Word, and you maybe you feel like you need to ask somebody for accountability, that's a good thing. But just make sure that you're asking someone to ask you the right question. Because, see, if you just ask them to ask you if you've read the Bible, you might be able to say yes to that. Yep, there I was, had it open, read the words, good. But you've not ever gotten to the real issue, and that is, what was your heart doing when you were in the words? So if you want to ask for accountability, that's good. But be sure you ask them to ask you the right question. What was your heart doing when you were in the word? So that is the primary thing that we want to address in us and with one another, really the rest of our lives, but especially this year in Wellspring. Now, the more that we understand um, what our hearts need when we're reading, the more we'll find ourselves praying. It will spur you on in prayer because you may find you're sitting there and you're reading along and all of a sudden you come out of your coma and say, I've just been reading for 10 minutes and I have no idea what I just looked at. And you cry out to God and you say, God, help me. Help me. Engage my heart. I need this here. Lord, let your spirit come and instruct me. And so we're crying out to him for our hearts to actually be fed in his word. And so it builds up your prayer life as well, and it grows your dependence on him as you read. Now, we're going to take one last look at how important it is to be dependent. We're going to talk about Peter for a minute. Now, the night before Jesus died... Peter was not shepherding his heart well, was he? Peter was pretty confident. Um, He pretty much is at a place where he's saying, you know what? I've checked inside Jesus, and I've got what it takes. I've got what it takes to go the distance with you. I'm I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to die with you. See, he thought his heart was okay. But Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And so Peter being so teachable, just like I am, says, (laughs) not me. See, this is a man who is terribly unaware of his inward condition. And he was so distraught by what happened after he did deny Jesus that even after he had seen Jesus raised from the dead, he basically makes the conclusion in John 21 that I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back to what I did before Jesus called me because I'm pretty sure he's not going to use me now. And so what did Jesus do with a disciple like that? Jesus came and he found Peter and he dragged him up on the beach and he says, now are you going to start reading the word? When are you going to quit being such an embarrassment to me, Peter? When are you going to knock it off? That's not what Jesus said at all, is it? See, he went right to the core. He went right to the core of what he knew was underneath it all. And Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? See, that's where Jesus wanted to come. 
and he wanted to protect and nurture and fan that love that Peter had for Jesus into a flame, into a roaring, blazing fire. And see, that's our Savior. So if you find yourself today in a place like Peter was, and you think, you know what, I'm pretty sure he's not going to use me, this is good news. You have a Savior who loves to come after disciples like us. And he does. And he will renew our love for him. So that's why we're going to be so focused on shepherding our hearts to meet with God himself in his word. Um, The God who, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we now have a heart to love. So let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for your word that it is living and active and it has the power to penetrate and pierce our hearts. Oh Lord, please help us to feel the weight of what you have to say in your word. Lord, help us to be women who are diligent shepherds of our heart with your word. Lord, we need you to take this lesson and impress it on our hearts and our minds. Lord, where there is conviction of sin, that we would repent, that we would restore with others, we would seek forgiveness, and that we would walk in newness of life, walking with you, letting your word be that which exposes and feeds our heart and draws us near to you. Lord, as we go to our discussion groups, I pray that um, you would let your spirit be present in each group, leading and guiding the discussion that each woman would be encouraged and that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.